What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today is a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. We have a little bit about nutrition, a little bit about training, a little bit about mindset, and some other things in here. So let's jump into it. First question is from Ron Demby. He asks, if you can't train every body part once per week, can you pick up where you left off next week? So if you're doing a program that's a body part split where you're doing, let's say, you know, push on one day and, you know, glutes and hams on one day and pull on another day and let's say quads on another day and you only get through, let's say, three of those and you're missed, you missed out on that quad workout, you can absolutely just pick up where you left off next week and you can just kind of roll into whatever the next workout is. And that is what I would recommend. Right now, my group programming is running a body part split like this. It's not really body part split, but it's like a, a bush pull upper lower. And so if you miss one of the workouts per week, I would just roll into the next workout. Let's say you miss day four, I would start your next week with day four. Uh, and you might get through less total rounds than somebody else who doesn't do that, but you'll at least keep uh, a balance of what you're hitting. If you're if you're not hitting a body part split, uh, you could design a program that hits everything more than once per week. And so if you miss out on an exercise uh, a day, let's say you're doing an upper lower split, but each of those upper lower days is a full upper body and a full lower lower body day, and you miss one of them, then okay, you at least hit everything on the other upper or other lower body day. Um, no right or wrong answer. I think it depends on what kind of split you're doing. If you haven't thought about what kind of split you're doing, then these are two options and two ways to kind of go about navigating this issue. Danny Fru asks, do you drop calories during a deload week? And I've, I've answered this on the podcast before, and here's the biggest thing you need to understand is this. If this adjustment of calories every deload week, which is, you know, uh, you know, semi-periodic, right? It happens like, you know, every six weeks or so. If this dropping of calories or adjustment of calories, we'll say, messes with your flow, then just leave everything alone. Just It's one freaking week. It's not a big deal. Like, this is the biggest consideration. If changing your calories right now isn't something you want to do because it's going to mess with your flow, you're in a good rhythm, don't do it. It's really not a big deal. You could just keep calories the same during deload week. Like, if you're, you know, if we look at some of, like, the physiological considerations, if you're in a surplus, people are like, oh, my God, I'm training less, you know, uh, so I don't have that training muscle building stimulus, so maybe I don't want to be in a surplus, and I understand that rationale, but at least for the first half of your surplus or for the first half of your deload, you're still adapting from the prior week's workouts. And so, you know, if you're, uh, if for the first four days of your deload, uh, you're still in a surplus, that would probably be a good thing because you're still adapting from the prior week's training. And then in the second half of the week, when you're no longer adapting and recovering, maybe you could bring things down to maintenance. Now that already sounds to me like more micromanagement than I would want to do. And so I just stay in it. I would just stay calories the same. Like who cares if you spent, you know, three days not training in a small surplus like you oh I'm in a 600 calorie surplus it's really not a big deal also you don't burn as many calories during your workout as you think most people on a rest day and a training day you know assuming neat is the same steps are the same burn basically the same amount of calories and so this isn't like a oh I'm burning way less calories so I need to drop cal uh, uh, calories during my deload week it's more of like, okay, you drop the training stimulus, and so do I want to be in a surplus during that time? I'd say most people should just leave it alone. Uh, if you're going for what's physiologically optimal, maybe you do the first half of your deload week in a surplus and the second half of your deload week at maintenance. Now, if you're in a deficit, you absolutely don't want to bring calories down. You could even consider bringing calories up. Some people would say you should bring calories up because the point of the deload week is to drop fatigue, and one of the things that you can kind of do to also drop fatigue would be to bring calories up to maintenance, and you get this compounding effect of being, you know, re reducing the real stimulative training, stimulus, it's redundant, 
um, and the uh, fatigue that's coming from the deficit. You can kind of mitigate both of those by increasing calories and decreasing the training. So that can be really great. Some people in a deficit are asking me, a lot of people, you might be asking me, do I wanna drop calories during daily week while I'm in a deficit? Definitely, definitely not. You're either gonna keep them the same, stay in the deficit, or you're gonna bring them up to maintenance. Again, you don't burn as many calories as you think in your workouts. Um, some people would say bring your calories up to maintenance in a deficit so that you don't lose muscle. I'm not so concerned with that, frankly. If you tell me, hey, I'm, I'm in a good rhythm with my calories, I, you know, I wanna keep pushing, I don't wanna take a diet break right now, I don't really need one then keep going. I'm going to tell you absolutely. If you're like, "Hey, this, you know, I'm I'm kind of indifferent and I could take a diet break now and that would be fine or I could not take a diet break." I might say, "Hey, why don't you try it because a deload and a diet break at the same time can be really 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 nice for dropping fatigue. You can feel really really great on the back end of that. I've seen some cool success with that." And obviously, if you're at maintenance, don't change anything. Dasha asks, besides being a time saver, are there any benefits to supersets in hypertrophy training? There's a ton of nuance to this question. I'm gonna try and answer it pretty generally and, and give you guys, point you in some directions of like where we could be thinking with this. If we're talking about things like antagonist supersets, so like a bicep tricep superset or like a quad hamstring superset or a chest back superset, two antagonistic muscle groups um, or let's say non-impeding muscle groups, so maybe a bicep and a quad, right? They, they're not antagonist muscles, they just are non-impeding, non-interfering muscle groups. It's mostly just a time saver, or you're using it to have a more systemic effect if you're using a lot of muscle tissue. So if you're in a systemic phase, which is not something we're gonna go super deep into right now, but if you're deloading from hypertrophy and doing a systemic phase, then that would be one of the benefits of doing supersets. Um, other than that, very generally speaking, the biggest benefit of doing antagonist supersets or non-impeding supersets is to save time. We do find that you can get, you know, similar hypertrophy, and obviously you can, by supersetting, you're saving time. And so similar hypertrophy, saving some time, it's a tool that you might want to consider if time is an issue for you, for sure. Now, if you're doing same muscle supersets, right? What if you're doing a tricep and a tricep or a quad and a quad, right? You might be utilizing, or you could be utilizing, uh, pre-exhaust or post-exhaust techniques as a tool. Now, when and why might you wanna use those things? It depends. I'm not sure that that's something I wanna go directly into in this short Q&A. might be a good, a good uh, uh, longer podcast. But let's say you're doing a pre-exhaust, which means maybe something like, you know, an example could be a leg extension superset into a hack squat. Both of those are quad exercises, and you are pre-exhausting your hack squat with a set of leg extensions. Now, why would you do that? Yeah, maybe one of two reasons you might do that. Um, pre-exhausting your hack squat, which is a lengthened biased exercise with a short biased exercise, which is a leg extension, aka doing a short exercise and then a lengthened exercise can you know, optimize or increase the amount of mechanical damage, mechanical tension on that muscle. Again, potentially saving time. Um, you, know, you could do the leg extension separately and then do the hack squat separately and you can get a similar effect, I suppose, maybe not on the mechanical damage side, but yeah. So pre-exhaust, if you're trying to maximize mechanical tension, uh, you would go from short to long. And you also might want to use pre-exhaust if you're trying to dis, uh, uh, help distinguish a certain li uh, a limiting factor, like a limiting muscle group. So let's say you do hacks and a lot of times you feel it in your glutes, right? And you're like, you know, and first of all, hack squat is mostly a quad exercise, but it also works the glutes. There's some hip flexion and depending on your foot position, you can work more glutes. And if you're using, you know, a, um, one of those linear hack presses where you're in some hip flexion, you're absolutely gonna work some glutes. And let's say you're you're not trying to work glutes. This is not an exercise where you're trying to work glutes. You're like, you know, I really am trying to use this hack squat to work my quads. What you can do is you can pre-exhaust with let's say a set of leg extensions, and then you show up to your hack squat and the quads are a little fatigued and you're more likely to make them the limiter. 
So that might be another reason that you're pre-exhausting. With a post-exhaust, if we take that same example and we're doing a hack squat maybe into a leg extension, the inverse of what we just talked about, it can produce a little bit more of a metabolic effect. Um, and if that's the goal, great. Um, you know, you might also use like a quote post-exhaust technique if the first exercise is pretty neurologically complex, like a back squat or a lunge or something, you might utilize that shortened position exercise second instead of showing up to that more neurologically complex exercise quite fatigued. And so there are some benefits to supersets in hypertrophy training. I'd say that they're a bit nuanced, whether you're pre-exhaust or post-exhaust, those tools can be, can be helpful. I think that most people are probably better off getting their bread and butter straight sets in order first before thinking, oh, you need to pre-exhaust or oh, you need to post-exhaust. Most people don't for a while. Um, those are, I'm not saying it's only a tool for advanced people. I'm just saying it becomes more necessary the more, you know, the more trained you are. Um, and yeah, if you're doing antagonist supersets, I would say that the biggest benefit, not the only benefit, is that it's a time saver um, and obviously potentially a more systemic effect depending on which uh, exercises you're choosing. The Page Right asks, trying to create a program with glutes, hams, and shoulder focus, but I'm finding it hard to hit enough volume. Am I just splitting hairs? So I try, I read this question a few times, and, and I was trying to put myself in your shoes and understand what you mean by trying hard to hit. and like you, You're finding it difficult to hit enough volume. And, and what, what my take on this is, or what my suspicion that is that what's happening is that you're confused about what enough volume means and you're assuming you need a fuckload of volume in your program to hit those muscle groups, right? You need probably, you, you probably think you need more muscle or more volume than you actually do. And so you have these three muscle groups, you really wanna focus on them and you're jamming so much volume in there that you're like, oh my God, I don't have enough room to, or time to do this. You can easily create a program with any focus really that you want with something like four days a week for 45 to 60 minutes. Like there's still like, just because you have a, a certain focus to your program doesn't mean that the program needs to get longer or the workouts need to be longer. If you have a focus, what that usually means is you are biasing your overall volume, the overall time and sets that you're in the gym towards those muscle groups. And what that means is that you're probably gonna turn down other things. And so if you have a glutam shoulder focus program, it means that your you know pecs, back, quads, calves, you know, buys and tries are gonna be maybe on maintenance volume or just less volume than they would have been. It doesn't mean because you have a glutam shoulder focus that all of a sudden this program is much longer. It means that you are taking the, the same size pie chart and you know dividing up your time and volume towards more glutam shoulders and less you know everything else. And so um, you know at what as I'm saying this, it's just another reminder that like this is one of the reasons I suggest just hiring a professional, getting a one-on-one -on -one coach, or joining a group like. Normal people don't have to think about this stuff. I, I, I spend my entire life learning how to, I'm not saying programming is, I'm gonna start by saying this disclaimer. I, think pro, I don't think programming is some fucking Rubik's cube that's impossible for the average person to do. I do not think that. But I do think it's super easy to have this taken off your hands and so that you can focus on the execution of your exercises, getting close to failure, you know, your nutrition, your recovery, stuff that's like, I don't know, I'd rather be handed the plan and have me just execute. Now, I definitely wanna understand, so I, I appreciate the question and I'm happy explaining it because I, even if you were my one-on-one -on -one uh, one -on -one client, I would still want to explain this to you, so I'm all for the educational piece. I just think this is one of those moments where I'm just like, well, hire a coach and you don't really have to worry about this too much. All righty, next question is from Lisa Portaden. Portaden, I fucked that up, sorry. Uh, asks, do you recommend, Sorry, do you recommend collagen? 
Okay, so first of all, a question like this really needs more context. Do I recommend collagen for what? For muscle growth? Fuck no. Collagen is a dog shit protein with really low leucine content. It's an incomplete protein source. For muscle growth, it's it's pretty terrible as far as protein sources go. What about for like hair, skin, and nails? My take on this is that if you're already hitting enough total protein and you want to take a flyer on, on collagen, go nuts. My guess is based on the research that I've seen that it doesn't do a whole lot of anything. And so I would recommend you get your total protein in check first. If I have a client who's not eating 0.8 grams per pound and they're like, I'd love to get some collagen. I'm like, it probably doesn't do anything and it definitely doesn't do much for muscle growth. And so why don't we get your protein up with good complete protein sources higher in leucine up to that optimal 0.8 grams per pound or higher. And then if you want to take a flyer on some collagen for your hair, then go nuts. I think that's fine. Just a quick recap, guys, like you're, when you eat protein, that protein is made up of amino acids. And what happens is your body breaks down those amino acids into an amino acid pool. Basically all the protein that gets broken down in its, uh, you know, its constituent amino acids goes into this one pool. And so you eat in collagen, it's high in certain amino acids like glycine, and it all goes into this pool. All the protein you eat from chicken and eggs and you know bread and rice and collagen and beans, it all, all of those amino acids just go into this bucket. And then you have this bucket of amino acids, it's called your amino acid pool. And then your body decides what to go ahead and do with that. This idea that you eat collagen and then your body decides to use that to make new collagen or stronger collagen, that isn't how that works. You don't get to decide what your body does with that collagen. Now, eating enough total glycine, which is, I, I would say, the biggest benefit of collagen protein, it's high in glycine, maybe contributing to that amino acid pool so that you have enough glycine so that maybe you can have hair, skin, and nail health. Truthfully, though, I think you probably get enough glycine with just enough total protein from complete sources. And if you were getting enough total protein from complete sources, you could probably just take a glycine supplement and you would be just fine. I think Thorn has one that's kind of decent. Um, yeah, so hopefully that's just a little background on collagen there. Alrighty, Rokon07 asks, tips for managing maintenance over the holidays. Yeah, so I'm going to do my own, a full podcast on this at some point, probably in the next week or two. Um, but a couple of things that ju- jumped to mind to me, and I, and I don't want to be too, let's say, rough around the edges here, but... My first thought is like, are the holidays really more than just a few days? Like, you know, I think we, I think we, we make it out to be this like six to eight week free for all. Um, you know, it's like, how do I manage, you know, maintenance over Halloween? It's like, well, it's like one day. I know that holidays are are different. They are certainly not Halloween. It's a little bit longer. You have, let's say, at least three holidays between Thanksgiving, whether you celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever, and then and then the New Year's. You definitely have several events, I'm sure. But is it really more than just several events like is it thanksgiving day maybe christmas eve christmas day you know maybe you have some nights during hanukkah i'm i'm jewish i'm I'm half and half so i celebrate both um it's like it's probably not more than like five things and if it is more than five things then there's another you know kind of route to go down but you know if we're talking about like five days here keep your head on straight and you know you know keep your exercise routine what it is try and keep your steps up even when it gets cold if you're somebody whose steps go to shit because it's cold out and you stop walking I would address that with some direct cardio. Um, You know, people don't want to spend a lot of money on a treadmill, which I understand, but I think there are really, really cheap foldable treadmills that some of my one-on-one clients have had excellent success with. They fold up, they go under your couch. You can walk while you're on a phone call or you're watching TV. Like, you know, I think steps going down when it gets cold out in the winter is totally normal. Happens to a lot of people. It's something that people are starting to express in my weekly check-ins with my one-on-ones. 
I think this is time to be a little bit more intentional with the times that you can get steps. And one of the best ways to do that is to uh, have some piece of cardio equipment in your home. Um, now back to this like discussion of, of, you know, are the holidays more than just a few days? Uh, I Listen guys, pick your battles, man. Like you can have anything you want, just not everything all the time. Not every occasion is a special occasion. It can't be. It can't be that every, let's say you have 10 events, which is massively way more social than I could ever imagine. But let's say you have 10 events over the six to eight week period where you're like, wow, I'm really out of, you know, it's a very social event. There's a lot of food and drink around. It's a, it's a high likelihood of temptation. Um, not every occasion is a special occasion. Not every single dinner needs to be massive indulgence. I'm not saying you can't indulge. You should, man, the holidays, you should enjoy yourself. Absolutely. There should be periods of, you know, a lot of eggnog and a lot of good food and a lot of good friends and laughs and fun and socialization. I love that. It should absolutely be part of that. But pick your battles. Not every occasion needs to be a special occasion. And and I think that that's, you know, it depends who's listening to this podcast. There are going to be some people who need more of this, you know, nudging to go have a good time and stop being so neurotic. And there's going to be other people who need, you know, many people are going to need that nudging of like, hey, you can have anything, just not everything all the time. And not every occasion is a special occasion. Um, you know, and I guess another tip might be like you, similar with Halloween, like you don't need to keep junk around the house. And I say junk, you know, I'm not, this, we're, let's call it what it is. I don't think there are good foods and bad foods, but there are non there are lower satiating, you know, lower nutritious, higher calorie, you know, higher palatability foods. You don't need those around the house 24 seven, just because quote, it's the holidays. Like, you know, you can, but don't be surprised when every time you walk into the kitchen, you grab a, you know, a, a, what, you know, a sugar cookie or something. I'm trying to think of like a, like a, like a Christmas tree cookie, right? Um, you don't need to keep that junk around the house 24 seven, just because it's the holidays. You don't like, you think you do. And you're like, oh, it's part of the holidays. So, okay. You, 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 that's the choice that you've made is to keep this temptation around. Um, and so hopefully those are some things that can get your mind moving. Um, honestly, there's an element of, of just pick your battles. Like this doesn't need to be every single time you leave your house is a special occasion. Um, start to kind of put into context the fact that you can have a good time with your friends without getting wasted and eating too much and or eating too much, you know? Like there are other reasons that we get together. Yeah, food is a massive part of community and socialization. I love that. It just doesn't have to be everything all the time. All right, Bodies by Bailey asks, what, what are we at, 18 minutes here? Uh, oh man, I'm, I might go a little quicker through the rest of these here. I wanna get through all of them. Bodies by Bailey asks, best way to make abductor gains? Is the abduction machine worthless? I don't think you asked that second part, but somebody asked about the abduction machine, so I just lumped these two together here. Um, so the abductor, <laughs> make abductor gains, mostly what you're talking about is like your glute minimus, um, which is like on the upper side of your glute, let's say. And, you know, there's a there's a machine that's literally called the abductor machine, abductor, abductor, abduction, abduction machine. And so I understand why people can gonna go to this to say, okay, I'm gonna grow that part of my glutes, the glutes that are in charge of abduction, this is the best way to do that. Problem is, well, let's back up a stack. <laughs> the best way to make abductor or glute minimus games is with standing cable abductions with a cable. So standing up straight, not in hip flexion, in full hip extension with a cable and abducting your leg, meaning pushing it out directly or almost directly out to the side. That's gonna be the best way to isolate the glute minimus. Why is the abduction machine worthless? It is It is mostly worthless. The abduction machine, while it does make you perform abduction, it puts you into a lot of hip flexion. Now think about when you are sitting, you are in hip flexion, your hips are bent. When you are standing, you are in hip extension, your hips are not bent. And when you get into hip flexion, 
and then you do abduction, what happens is your external rotators, particularly your piriformis, is what takes over the movement. And so when you kind of move, you know, a lot of times we're like, oh, abduction works your glute minimus. It's like, but we don't take into account the, the other orientations of the joints. And when you, are in, when you are in hip flexion and you perform abduction, what you've done is in that hip flexion, you've lined up the piriformis perfectly. You've disadvantaged the glute medius and glute minimus. Uh, and so now it's your piriformis really that's working. Now the problem is if you are doing the abduction machine, you will feel it in your glutes. Now, why is that? And that's because your piriformis, your external rotators, they lie deep or underneath your glute. And so when your piriformis is lighting up, it, and, and I ask you to point to where that is, you will point to your glute. And you'll be like, oh, it's working right here. It is, just not the muscle that you are talking about. It's something deep or underneath that. Now, the piriformis isn't something you really want to hypertrophy for some structural issues, it's not in the context of this discussion, not really in the scope of this discussion, but if you want to make abductor, abductor gains or glute min gains, do them with standing cable abductions, get out of the abduction machine. You don't want to really be performing abduction whilst in, whilst, <laughs> while in hip flexion. Cool. Alrighty, Bridge Tangles asks, I've seen Bulgarian split squats done with one or two dumbbells. Which should I do and why? So the most important thing you need to know, Bridge, uh, is that... Or Bridget Angles. Ooh, Bridge Tangles or Bridget Angles or Bridget Tanglees. Anyway, um, is that it doesn't matter a ton. The amount, like what your body is doing, the angle of your hips and your knees and the height of your back leg and the uh, total amount of load that's being used is going to be like 99% of what you're getting out of the movement. Now, if you're holding two dumbbells, that's really great. It's a nice balanced, we call that like a suitcase carry or a suitcase uh, loading pattern. Um, that's really great. I would use that as your default. If you're going to hold one dumbbell, uh, I recommend holding that ipsilateral, which means on the same side as your front working leg. Now, depending on if you're holding it on the same side or the opposite side leg, contralateral, uh, can change a little bit as far as what's happening at the front leg, but insanely minor. And when it comes down to a head-to-head -head between ipsilateral on the same side, so let's say you're working your right leg, this would be ipsilateral holding on your right hand, and contralateral would be working your right leg but holding on your left hand. Um, contralateral tends to challenge anti-rotation a little bit more. A lot of people were like, oh, you know, we see EMG increase in your, in your glute when you hold it contralateral. Um, that's, that's one of the scenarios where EMG data can be a little bit misleading. Uh, that doesn't mean more tension. I would more highly recommend just holding two dumbbells. I think that that is your best bet. If you only are going to hold one dumbbell, I would go ipsilateral, which would be the same side. Alia Vidamovna asks, Adding protein powder to oats slash yogurt to make it more hot, more filling slash higher protein, yay or nay? Yay. Definitely yay. That's all I have to say. Okiki asks, what's the difference between a bent knee RDL and a regular deadlift? So just, to, just for clarification, like, you know, when we look at hinge movements, what we're really looking at is the ratio or the amount of hip flexion to the amount of knee flexion. And so we can take, let's say, a stiff leg deadlift on one end of that of that spectrum and let's say a regular deadlift on the other end of that spectrum and then a bent knee RDL would be in the middle. And so you have a stiff-legged deadlift, which is kind of a misnomer because you, you are not stiff-legged, you have a slight knee bend, but it's a very little knee bend. When you have a very little knee bend, what you get is much more hamstring lengthening and it becomes more a really, really, really good hamstring exercise. It's also a decent glute exercise, but it's not optimal for glutes. Uh, really good hamstring exercise. 
Once you start to bend the knees a little bit more, you start to shorten the hamstrings and disadvantage them so they work a little bit less, and you engage a little bit more quad, but a lot more glute. And so we have the bent knee RDL, which has a little bit more knee bend than the stiff-legged deadlift and a little bit less knee bend than the regular deadlift. Now, when you move from the bent knee RDL to the regular deadlift, you engage a lot more quad, um, which ends up the regular deadlift becoming ends up becoming a very integrated movement, which makes you very strong at it because it, it recruits a lot of muscle fibers, um, puts you in a mechanically advantageous position, engages quads and glutes and adductors and, and hams and back, um, and makes you very strong, but it makes it not that great for any one thing in particular. Uh, and so to answer your question directly, the difference between the bent knee RDL and the regular RDL is that you have more knee bend in the deadlift and less knee bend in the bent knee RDL. Um, you could say that, okay, on the RDL, you don't touch the ground. On the deadlift, you touch the ground. A lot of people think that. Whether you're touching the ground or not is, for hypertrophy, not relevant. What's relevant for hypertrophy is staying within your active range. Most people aren't going to touch the ground on a, on an RDL, any form of an RDL. It's it's out of almost everybody's active range unless you have, uh, you know, short femurs and really long arms. Let's say, for example, you might touch the ground. Um, and with a deadlift, because you're bending the knees more, you probably will end up touching the ground because you don't need as much hip flexion because you get a little bit of a, an addition uh, assistance with the knee flexion. Cool. AMZ143 asks, monkey feet, are they worth the purchase if you're at home? So those of you guys who've never seen or heard of monkey feet, it's like this, it's like you put on a, I'm trying to think of what it feels like. It's like you're putting on like a, like a roller blade and then on the bottom of the roller blade, you attach a weight. And so at first, this was kind of comical. It looked kind of, before, I'd say, before the pandemic, um, I had seen these and they look kind of comical. You're like, oh, this is like stupid thing, looks pretty gimmicky. But the more you train people at home, the more you realize that training knee flexion and extension is really difficult. Not really difficult at home, but it is not super easy without a leg extension and a hamstring curl machine. It's easy to train, you know, quads in the length and position with your split squats and your back squats and your hack squats and your leg press and whether you have those at home or not, it's not hard with split squats and back squats. You can do it, split, uh, sissy squats. But training the quads in the shortened position is really like almost entirely limited to using a leg extension. And so I've definitely in my group found creative ways to challenge the quads in their short position. I'm very proud of the fact that we're able to do that. Um, as well as challenge the hamstrings in their uh, quality of knee flexion. But monkey feet's actually kind of interesting. And, you know, I'm not saying it's going to be a mandatory thing in my group. It's probably never going to be a mandatory thing in my group. But I think if you own one or if you're at home and you are having trouble challenging knee flexion and extension, I think it's a pretty decent thing that can at least give you an extra option. Um, it's definitely not the dumb gimmicky thing it probably first looked like it would be. Um, and in a world where a lot of people are training at home and knee, knee extension, hamstring curl, uh, or knee flexion extension is hard to train, this can give you another option. If you're in a full gym, I wouldn't recommend it. Janessa Williams, why are protein numbers so different in maintenance and a cut? I'm gonna keep this short, Janessa. They shouldn't be. <laughs> they Your protein should stay basically the same you know, basically the same across all of your uh, phases of training. You know, you need enough protein to maintain or build muscle. And that number doesn't really change a whole lot depending on your caloric. I know people are like, oh, if calories go down, you have a more risk of muscle loss, so protein needs to go up. I don't know. If you're above 0.8 grams per pound and you're training a lot, I don't think this matters. It doesn't need to get jacked up to 1.2. Maybe in instances where you have a ton of muscle, like a professional bodybuilder, maybe you need to dot every I and cross every T, and maybe they go up a little bit. Um, 
And then if you're in a surplus, the irony is your your protein requirements actually go down because you don't you have such an anabolic stimulus from the just calorie surplus that you don't need that you you have no worry of any of that protein uh, not going towards muscle growth. But the irony is when you go into a surplus, you end up getting a lot of incomplete protein sources uh, because you're just eating way more calories, a lot of times way more carbohydrates, which have ancillary grams of protein. And so you end up wanting your protein to stay kind of high still. It's not like, oh, I'm in a surplus, I'll bring protein down because what ends up happening is that you're adding in so many incomplete sources, you don't want the total number to go down, you kind of want that total number to stay up. Uh, and so frankly, I think protein numbers, I, I, I honestly never really change them outside of like a 0.8 to 1.2 grams per pound and then within that, it's gonna come down to personal preference. Byram Stephanie asks, I'm working out four days a week. Is it important for rest days to be in between or can I rest the rest days be all together? So here's the deal. You're working out four out of seven days. What is the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is you do all four days in a row with no, no rest days. Now, when people hear the words worst case scenario, they think it's a bad thing. Worst case scenario is a relative term. It means it is the worst of all the options. Does it mean it's a bad option? Listen, if you get 200 workouts a year, that's what this would be, right? Four workouts a week. If you get 200 workouts a year and you tell me you did four days on, three days off, and you did that every week for a year, and somebody else did it in a more optimal sense, which might be, let's say, something like two days on, one day off, two days on, two days off, and you ask me which of these two people got better results, I would tell you that it would not, the difference between the two people's results would not come down to this this difference in split. You know, it would come down to other factors, nutrition and protein and sleep and all that good stuff. And so frankly, you know, the fact that you're getting four workouts a week is way, way, way more important than how you're splitting it up. Um, and so I wanna tell you that if this is the best way for you to get it done, and this is the most consistent way you'll get all four workouts in, and for you to try and split it up really is gonna fuck with your day-to-day -day life, your consistency, I would not change it. Now, if you're a person listening to this and you're like, hey, I can work out whatever days I want, I can organize my week around my training and, and I, can, I can optimize if I want, what should I probably do? I would recommend having two days on, one day off, two days on, and two days off. And, and just an, a tangent point would be that there's probably some tiny, tiny benefit to actually having consecutive rest days. And so let's say you were working out five days a week and you only had two rest days. You could take a rest day in the middle and at the end, in the middle and the end, or you could train five days in a row and then take two days off. I don't know, I might lean towards the five days on, two days off, again, all else being equal, because I do think that rest days can have a compounding effect. So having back-to-back -back rest days might have a unique benefit over just a single rest day. But all of that being said, while that's fun to talk about optimization, I will tell you straight up, this doesn't matter a whole lot. Do what you can be consistent with. And if you have a chance to 100% optimize, maybe find time for back-to-back -back rest days sometimes. The Watford family asks, 12 year old, my 12-year-old wants to start lifting. Can he do your group programming or would you recommend in-person PT? Um, he can absolutely do the group programming. However, I would recommend getting an in-person PT um, you know, the programming itself, he can absolutely do. But I would really want somebody there with my son or daughter, if it's their first time working out, to really kind of have a discussion with them about how important technique and form is. And as much as I would love your money, I would rather see this person get off to a good start and and have, you know, the, the, the tricky part is in a perfect world, you get a great personal trainer who totally understands how to work with a 12 year old, you know, establishes, you know, an ethos of good technique, uh, you know, gets the ego out of it and sets your kid up on a really, really great path. The irony is 
those are hard to find. You know, I've trained a lot of 12 year olds in my life when I was an in-person personal trainer. And I'll tell you right now, even me back then, I didn't know shit. Um, and so I would find a good in-person PT. I know that that can be an, you know, not, not an oxymoron, but difficult to find sometimes. Um, especially one that you trust with your 12 year old, but I would, I would seek that out. I would want somebody in there with him, watching him, uh, face to face, eye to eye, having those discussions. And so, you know, in a, in a weird way, he could do the programming if he had supervision with an in-person personal trainer. Uh, that would be my recommendation. Um, if he is already pretty competent with movement patterns and all of that stuff, then absolutely, or, or she, by the way, I don't know if it's a guy or a girl, you can absolutely do the group program. There's nothing contraindicative, contra, is that even a, am I extrapolating on a word too much there? There's no contraindications in the group programming that, that would tell me he can't do it or she can't do it. Alrighty. Next question, ooh, we got a few more. All right, this is gonna be a longer one. Oh well, is from KPNR5, and she asks, what are natural ways for women to boost testosterone? And I think you also asked, is that even possible? So what, what is possible is for you to maximize your own natural testosterone production. That is, there are absolutely things you can do to give yourself the best, you know, your best personal individual genetic testosterone production. It's the same stuff for women as it is for men. It's gonna be enough sleep, it's going to be enough calories. It's going to be enough body fat, which what I mean is just don't be fucking single digit body fat, especially as a woman. Um, eat enough dietary fat, at least 0.3 grams per pound, resistance train, and manage your stress. And so those are a lot like sleep enough, which is let's say seven to nine hours per night. Eat enough calories, aka don't be in a deficit if your goal is to maximize testosterone. Have enough body fat. Don't be single digit body fat percentage if you're a woman and maybe like sub seven if you're a guy. Um, eat enough dietary fat, important for sex steroid hormone production, uh, resistance train, absolutely, uh, and manage your stress would be all of the things I would do. Brie Marie asks, I'm 5'7", 160 pounds, what's your recommendation for a bulking split? And do you work with women to get their period back? Uh, I believe you said, yeah, I think you, I believe in the question, I might've paraphrased that you that you had lost your period, yeah. So yes, I absolutely work with women in the situation. I'm working with several right now. Um, totally, definitely something that I love to do. I think it is a pursuit that goes beyond the aesthetics, right? I mean, this is like a baseline biological health issue, and so definitely something that I really enjoy working with women on. Um, now, my, my thought is that you're asking about a workout split. Best recommendation for a workout split during a bulk. And all I could think to myself, Bree, was like, who gives a shit? You need to eat more. Like, you need to eat more. Any split with enough volume programmed intelligently will do just fine. My advice would be, though, if you're looking to get your period back, if you've lost your period, what that is is on some level, it is, it is you are, your body is uh, sensing a high stress environment. Now, that stress can be from life stress. It can be from low energy availability, it can be from overtraining, which is a combination or a, a, um, you know, a comparison between your work to rest ratio. And so, you know, you need to eat more. This is the most important thing. You probably need to gain some body fat back. At 5'7", 116, you're super, super, super duper lean. Uh, so I, most important thing here is for you to gain some body fat. Second thing is to make sure you're not training so much that you're still incurring a ton of stress on the body. Now, I'm not saying you can't train enough to build muscle. What I am saying is, trying to train as much as possible while you bulk, assuming that all is gonna be fine if you just gain some weight, I've found isn't, isn't always, doesn't always work. Uh, unfortunately, this is a kind of a crossroads where you've probably accepted that you need to gain some weight. This is what it sounds like, 
right? You're asking me for a bulk split. So you're kind of in this place where you're like, you know, I know I need to gain some weight. I'd like to get my period back. And then you're thinking to yourself, well, if I'm going to gain weight, I might as well use this as a time to build muscle. And logically, I totally see where you're coming from. But I've found that sometimes even, you know, if you're busting your ass in the gym, maximizing your bulk, trying to build as much muscle as possible, sometimes that stress on the body can be inhibitory in terms of getting your period back. Sometimes it takes lowering the training stimulus as well. And people get scared shitless when they have to eat more and train less. And I, you know, logically, I understand where you're coming from. But getting your period back is an end that is justifiable by any means. And if it means, you know, training enough to maintain muscle, maybe gain a little bit, but not pushing so freaking hard that you kind of, you know, uh, are fighting against yourself here. I think that that's something I really want to get across here is that, you know, you might not want, I understand that you're like, hey, I got to gain some weight, so I might as well gain some muscle. I get that. But just, this isn't the time for you to go balls to the walls with your training. I think going balls to the walls with your training would be counterproductive. Um, and so I would say train three to four days a week with a decent amount of volume. Make sure you're gaining a little bit of weight. You're sleeping enough. Um, you're not sore and, and fatigued all the time and, and definitely don't do too much. Next question is from Amanda B24 Fit. How long did it take to feel confident as a PT? Do you have any advice? I need a sip of water real quick. Been motor mouthing um, these entire podcasts. Um, all righty. Somebody actually, funny, real quick pause. I met um, I met somebody that in person at the CrossFit Games who had, uh, who was uh, told me that she listened to my podcasts at 1.5 speed. And then I had somebody else thought that my podcasts were always on 1.5 speed because of how fast I was talking. Uh, and I, and I said that just double check. I think it's not at 1.5. So somebody was like, Hey, I think you're uploading your podcasts at 1.5 speed. That's what it was. And I was like, no, I I'm definitely not. That's just me speaking really fast. And so this lady who was listening to, uh, Jenna, if you're out there, uh, love you. Uh, not my Jenna, different Jenna. And she was like, Oh, I listened to you at 1.5 speed. And I was blown away. I'm like, that must be that must be a real, uh, you must really be concentrating. That's awesome. Um, all right. So how long did it take to feel confident as a PT? And do you have any advice for a beginner? So what I, what I want to describe to you is something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And if you Google it, it, you'll, you'll see a graph. And basically what it's graphing is, um, you know, the amount of knowledge that you think you have in relation to the amount of knowledge that you actually have. And, what happens is when you start off as a PT, a lot of time you gather some knowledge early on, you get very excited about it, um, and your perception of how much you know goes through the roof. So I think in the first couple of years, I thought I knew a ton. I was very confident, actually, overly confident. The more, like, you get, uh, like, the more you end up knowing, and so if you look further along that graph, as you, th as you get to know more, you think you know more, but eventually you hit this peak where you start to know so much that you realize how little you actually know. And a lot of times this is like, you know, I think somebody has coined it like the peak of Mount Ignorance, where you realize how little you actually know and, and you get this massive hit of like imposter syndrome. Um, and you're like, I actually don't know shit. I need to go back to school. I need to get my master's. I need to do this course and that course and this course. And on some level, it's a really good thing because it's super humbling and it's really a, an important part of the maturation process to understand that what you don't know and how much you don't know. And most importantly, to become comfortable knowing that you don't know everything. And so that would be, I'm not sure how much of that was direct advice, but the first thing I would say is that be okay with the fact that you don't know everything. Be the person who's gonna say, you know what? 
I'm not really 100% sure on that, but I'm gonna go find out for you. A lot of, I wish I could have told myself that early on because there were times where I thought I needed to know the answer to everything, and so I gave a whole bunch of bullshit answers to a bunch of clients and um, really like boosted my own ego because they would obviously never fact check you, and so they're like, oh my God, this this guru knows everything. Um, but it, it, it hindered my learning process because I didn't actually take a step back and be like, you know, I don't really know that. Um, I got away with bullshitting people for a long time. Um, and, and, and the other thing I would say would be, you know, you get more confident because you know more, but you also get more confident, confident because you become more comfortable not knowing everything. And I think that that's important. And so the fact that you're feeling not super confident right now, early on, like that's, probably because your expectation is because you're supposed to know everything. You're not. I, you're supposed to keep learning. You're supposed to be okay saying I don't know. Um, and you're supposed to keep pursuing, you know, greater knowledge in your field. And so my, I guess my a couple direct piece of advice would be to keep to, to keep learning, to never stop learning, to, you know, your, your self-improvement, whether it's a course or a certification or a seminar you're going to or something, a books you're reading, like should always be a staple of a new PT. You should always be reading something, maybe not 24 seven, but there should always be some part of your life. If you were to kind of bracket out the time that you're spending on things, self-improvement directly related to your field should absolutely be on there. And the second thing I'd like to say is that you don't need to know everything to help a lot of people. Like, I can sit up here and tell you about the seven divisions of the deltoid and the proper arm angle to bias the lat, the, the, the iliac division of the lat, or we can talk about, you know, the nuances of, um, you know, polysaturated fat and, and inflammation or poly, polyunsaturated fat and inflammation and all of this stuff. And it's like, well, man, to help a lot of people out there, you don't need to know that much. I'm not saying you don't need to know a lot. You need to be okay saying, I don't know. You need to work hard to find the hell out. You need to keep working on your own self-improvement, but you also can help a lot more people than you think without a ton of knowledge. I'm not saying don't have a lot of knowledge. I'm just saying like the average person doesn't need your PhD. The average person needs your support to build, to understand basic nutrition, to work through some of their headspace issues. Like you can do a lot of that stuff without a ton of academic background. And so find some solace in the fact that, you know, you're probably following me and other PTs like me who are maybe further ahead in their career than you, and you're thinking, wow, I really need to know the stuff that they know to help people. Fuck that, you totally do not. You can know a lot less and help a lot of people. And so just because you don't know what I know or what another coach knows doesn't mean you can't help people. And so you don't need to know everything. Be the kind of person who's gonna go find out and know that, you know, you can help a lot of people with some basic knowledge. You really can. And so accept that that doesn't, you don't need to be, you know, the the general population in America doesn't need your PhD knowledge. I'm not saying it's not relevant. Of course not. We need that those people. I, I'm just speaking to you, Amanda, directly. It's like you probably at this moment in time know a lot to help a lot of people. And I want you to find some confidence in that. Alrighty, let's get through one more question. Ooh. Um, okay, we'll do a couple more. These are short. So Sarah Tobin asks, what's the best program to fit into a busy schedule. I'm barely hanging on at four days a week. Three days a week. Go to three days a week. You can make some great gains with three days a week. You're going to be just fine. Thursday 86 asks, soreness can sometimes, can soreness sometimes be a good indicator that I'm using correct muscles? I would say absolutely yes. Soreness is not a useless marker. It's just useless without proper context. If someone's like, hey, my legs are really sore. Like, I have no idea if you gained hypertrophy or you hypertrophied your legs or not. If you run a marathon, your legs will be sore as fuck. That does not mean you got hypertrophy. 
on the contrary, probably. Um, and so within the right context, like in the proper context of, you know, proper hypertrophy training and execution and nutrition, we can use soreness as a part of this like assessment matrix to kind of talk about the training stimulus and recovery ratio that you're kind of incurring. And so it can absolutely be a good indicator that I'm using the right muscles. It can be, but it's certainly just one piece of a puzzle. It's not the only, it's on, I'm sore here. That's perfect, great. It doesn't really tell the whole story. And so I do think it's just part of a matrix that we can talk about another time. Leslie B. Clemen, uh, that's gotta be it, uh, asks, I feel like no matter what I do, I feel my lateral raises in my traps. What do I do? Couple things to think about, Leslie. One, the first thing I want, the first two things I need to say here is your traps are working in the lateral raise. They will absolutely work. They're either gonna be working directly on the load or they're gonna be working in a stabilizing fashion. They're absolutely working. Second, can we stop fucking being so afraid of growing our traps, women? Like, there's nothing wrong with growing your traps. It's not like you're gonna, it's not like you're gonna be slapping on like two fucking like meat slabs on and all of a sudden have no neck and look like a UFC fighter. It's like, that's not what's gonna happen if you work a little bit of traps, I promise. It's not, it doesn't turn you into some crazy masculine, you know, person and I just want people to stop fearing this. It's not a big deal. You work some traps, it's okay. You're not gonna fucking sprout two ribeyes on your neck. Like, cool, next. Let's talk about some things we can do because yes, okay, your goal is to build the medial delt and so I understand the goal is not to build the traps with the lateral raise. It's not the main goal. So I, I can bring it back down to this simple question of what can I do to, to feel the lateral raise in the correct target musculature, which by the way, I sympathize with. I think it's a question you can ask. Just want people to not be so afraid of uh, the tra building traps at all. So what you wanna do is you want to have a slight, well, okay, let's take a step back. Um, I think what most people need to adjust their lateral raises is they need to start raising in the scapular plane. And what that means, just very broadly, is instead of raising directly out to the sides, you wanna bring your arms, you wanna adduct them horizontally about 10 to 15 degrees. What that means is you want about a 10 to 15 degree out in front of the body, which isn't very much, but it's not directly out to the side and it will feel noticeably different from what you've done in the past. Now, in order to make that easier, this raising in the scapular plane, you, you'll benefit from a slight, very slight lean forward and maybe a staggered stance. And then last but not least, if you want to eliminate or limit the trap you, uh, involvement in your lateral raises, you wanna think about pressing the dumbbells out away from you, not pulling them upward. And so once you're raising in the scapular plane, you have your little lean forward going, you kind of wanna think about pushing those dumbbells out to the sides. Now, once you reach about shoulder height, if you're trying to get a little bit higher than that, yes, there will be an, there will be an up component to the movement, absolutely. But you want to initiate the movement with pressing out. Alrighty, last question from Ariel999. She says, what is the best stance for unilateral RDLs to mitigate imbalances, does it matter? First and foremost, I don't care about muscle imbalances, natural muscle imbalances that you're born with. Like you're not gonna be symmetrical. You're not going to be 100% symmetrical. There's gonna be one side that's maybe a little stronger, maybe a little bit bigger, maybe gains muscle a little better, more coordinated, et cetera. And so I think the goal of mitigating these naturally found imbalances is not worth your time. Now, if we're just talking about what's the best stance for unilateral RDLs for hypertrophy, I would say a B stance. I think you mentioned a B stance, a kickstand, and a single leg. A kickstand and a B stance, my understanding is those are the same thing. It's essentially a modified single leg stance where instead of just being on one foot, which you know requires a bit of a balance component, you keep the other leg down in the form of a kickstand or a B stance, um, just for stabilization, not for you know taking on a lot of the load or tension. And so I think B stance RDLs are a wonderful exercise, not because they fix muscle imbalances, but because they allow you to work unilaterally without 
the instability and the balance issue of balancing on one leg. All right, guys, that was a super fun episode. I will see you guys in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.